Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I'm so honored to be speaking with Jen Senko. She's, of course, the uh, she's an author and a filmmaker, the creative force behind the brainwashing of my dad, how the rise of the right-wing media changed a father and divided a nation, and how we can fight back. And, of course, the documentary, I think it came out in 2016. The book came out later. But welcome, Jen, to Mindship Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Clint. I'm so excited to talk to you because as I went through your book, I was saying before we hit record, I went through it on Audible, actually, and I listened to it on the way back and forth to work. And it was there were so many threads that, I, that resonated with me because you talk about cult psychology, you talk about the rise of right wing media. And I was a ditto head. I was a Rush Limbaugh fan back in the day when I was an evangelical Christian. So, so many points. I was like, oh, yes, yes, I know exactly what she's talking about. So the book yeah. and the movie is it's really incredible. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. So as I went through the book, and then I actually did watch the documentary the other night, it seems like there's kind of a thesis. There's two parallel but related storylines. Correct me if I get this wrong. But on the one hand, you've got this story of the transformation of your father. He starts out as a kind of a mild man and fairly he's a progressive political man. He becomes this angry, ranting conservative. But then, of course, spoiler alert, how he finishes his life, he kind of resumes that original self. So that's one sort of half, isn't it? But then the other corollary piece is that a history of how that far, far right wing media empire in the United States came to be, how it affects its users, that sort of drip tap the feed of information. Would you add or anything or change anything to, to what I've just kind of laid out as the thesis of the book? No, I think that's, that's very good. You get an A plus. I would just hmm. say the, the film and the book, um, I, well, I like to emphasize this point, show how right-wing media drove the stealth campaign by libertarian billionaires who were later joined with evangelicals and uh, gun and rights people mm -hmm. uh, and mega corporations uh, to remake our government into one that would serve only them. And my dad, like millions of others Americans, just got bamboozled by this campaign after he got immersed in the, their right-wing media. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, no, like you noted, the most important thing is when his media diet was, was changed, uh, he resumed to his original self and even That's, better. Yeah, it's fascinating. Maybe we could talk about your dad's story a little bit. I know, obviously, you cover this in the book and the film. How does that happen? Can you give us kind of a synopsis? He, how does he go from that mild manner? He was pretty progressive. I think he voted more Democrat when he was a bit younger, when you were younger and your brothers and all that were quite young. And then something happened, something changed. What changed in him that turned him into this ranting, angry, conservative, ditto head Fox News guy? How does that happen? Yeah. Okay. So growing up, my dad was like a very funny, kind-hearted open-minded, uh, non-political Kennedy Democrat. Also, he had 
been in, in the depression. So he liked FDR, FDR brought them relief, right? Uh, and he always taught us that everyone should be treated equally. But after he retired, he got a part-time job and in a long commute to work, he found Bob Grant and he started listening to right-wing media and he became argumentative, an argumentative right-wing zealot and prejudice against people who weren't legal, white, and Republican. You mentioned Rush Limbaugh as one of the pivotal figures, but you say, who's, who is Bob Grant? Because I never came across him. I'd never heard of him before I read about him in your book. He, he was kind of a pre-runner to the Rush Limbaugh's of the world. But he, as I understand, he wasn't nationwide like Limbaugh later became. Is that right? Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, he was the, con, the called the, the father of conservative radio. And that was uh, my dad's first exposure to that. Um, and they were definitely cut from the same cloth, racist, misogynist, who knew mm-hmm. how to appeal, especially to uh, old white men. <laughs> right. Conspiracy <laughs> yeah. theories and all that. But why was Rush Limbaugh such a driving figure? Because obviously, like I say, you spend a lot of time talking about Rush Limbaugh in the book. He was a huge figure in your dad's sort of transformation. What struck me was you say that your dad's, his very personality changed. He became, as it were, a different person, an unrecognizable person. Why was Rush Limbaugh such a pivotal figure in that transformation? Well, um, one of the reasons and one of the reasons why a lot of uh, older white men at that time changed is there'd been a lot of powerful social movements going on in the 60s and 70s with civil rights, women's rights, you know, anti-war movement, you know, and mores were changing too. Um, actually, he fit most of the mores because he was probably an early hippie before the hippies. But so the world and, and roles were changing rapidly and uh, many men felt uh, non-essential, um, threatened, probably experiencing self-worth, doubt. They would have to redefine themselves like, who am I now? Who, who can I be? Uh, was how I was raised and who I became all wrong now. So these guys, like the Bob Grants and the Limbaugh's, came across like their buddies, like they were on the same underdog team, and mm. they tapped into this injured pride. The resentment, the rage, the anger, the whatever it might be of, of that base. Yeah. So, and it wasn't just Republican conservative, was it? Your dad was more of a, a liberal Democrat, so he, he had a, a wide appeal, didn't he, to, to that demographic? Yes, yeah. But, you know, a lot of things like, you know, that, that my dad felt like he had to clamp down on, I, I don't want to be corrected on, you know, like maybe my mom and I, he would call us the girls or, you know, tap us on the rear end in the kitchen. Right. You know, we'd have to set him straight, like, you don't do that, you know, and you don't say that. Not that he was corrected a lot, but, you know, it just made him feel like, wh- where do I belong? And also, yeah. he wasn't that self-reflective he just knew that there were these funny feelings inside and here's a guy that's talking right to them saying hey you don't have to feel that way they're full of bunk you know i got the real story this is the way it really is and it's someone else's fault because i think someone i can't remember who it was in the documentary said something like you know people like limbaugh and of course others like alex jones and so many others now they they give these people an enemy there's someone to blame and it's not your fault 
for the reason your life is the way it is. It's them. It's they. It's that the immigrants or the Muslims or whoever it might be, feminazis, as as Rush Limbaugh might say. So there's a, a convenient target, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. And uh, I can even get into that more. I mean, later mm-hmm. on, I, I know we're yeah. going to talk why the liberals didn't succeed. But, you know, mm-hmm. uh, one of the reasons is they didn't give somebody a specific enemy to target, you know. Right. And- Whereas, yeah, the yeah. outrage of the right wing media, they have lots of enemies even now. Well, so yeah. as, you, as your dad transforms, he becomes this different person. What was his relationship with the family like? I think you alluded to this a little bit ago because you talk about in the book, he starts, it wasn't that he was just listening to guys like Limbaugh. And then I guess he got into Fox News when it became a thing. But he starts sending out emails to everybody. He's flooding everyone in the family, relatives and all that with just this right wing. It was really propaganda. I think you say it's not just emails about, hey, take a look at this. It's like, no, this is conspiracy theory, ranting, raving. He actually becomes like an evangelist for the stuff that he was taking in. How, how did that right. affect your relationship with him? Well, I do have an answer that <laughs> down mm-hmm. here somewhere, but I can't find it. So it just really what it did was it alienated the family because he, and since I had been an evangelical Christian for a minute, I knew that you were supposed to change people. And that's how I felt like he was being. Um, So he, there were all these emails, like when the internet first came out, you know, email was this new way of communicating. And right-wing think tanks were pumping out these like dozens of emails a day that seemed like homespun, but they would actually propagate the like right-wing ideology. And the main thing was to demonize Democrats. That was the big main thing. Mm -hmm. So he would forward them to us all the time. And we would say, dad, please don't forward us these emails. They're BS and Actually, that's what got my mother eventually starting to learn how to source and fact check. So she would send him answers back. Uh, we had to block him, the kids, you know, my, me and my two brothers had to block him because it was so obnoxious and so infuriating and so upsetting. That comes across in the documentary as well as the book, isn't it? You've talked to, I don't know, hundreds, maybe thousands, I don't know, of people since you started even fundraising for the film that said, yeah. my God, the exact same thing happened to my father, yeah. brother, uncle, friend, whoever, where they became a totally different person. We can't talk anymore. No matter what subject you bring up, thinking it's safe, it'll right. turn into some political argument or something like that. So it's affected you know, millions of people, I think, hasn't it? it? Yes, it has. It, it, it To me, it's an epidemic now. At the mm. time, I was calling it a phenomenon, but it's an epidemic. I mean, I think that it's almost been like a massive brainwashing of millions of people. People were shocked at at Jim Jones. People were shocked at Nazi Germany. But people can be, can, can change. And I joke that it reminded me of that 1950s movie, The Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you know, the pod people. Mm-hmm. They look at their their parent or their sister or brother. They scratch their head. And it's like, who are you? Complete mm-hmm. change. It's very frightening. So hard. And then though, the fascinating mm-hmm. thing, and this is what I love about the book, is that 
toward the end of your dad's life, he becomes sort of like his old self again. And that is a fascinating thing because it said to me, I guess I learned from it, there is hope for someone who's addicted to all this right-wing outrage media. How does that actually happen? How did that happen in the case of your dad where he sort of regained his, I guess you could say his authentic self? Yeah. So what what happened? And uh, if you haven't seen the movie or, or, you know, haven't read the book, there's even more details, but I'll give you the short synopsis. I'm talking to your audience because I know you've read the book and seen the movie. One day or in around 2010, well, first, first, all those years, my mother had been responding to him. She was the only one who would, and she would fact check him. So I don't know if that would planted seeds or not, but mm-hmm. the real transition happened in 2010 when they both, they moved to a senior community and somehow in that move, the radio broke. So in the old days, he used to fix it, but you know, he was getting old. He put it in the garage, like, I'll get to it. So immediately there was no Rush Limbaugh. He kind of mellowed out immediately. And sometimes would would start having lunch with my mom again. And they would mm-hmm. talk. And that is what they always used to do, used to blah, 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 blah. Then the TV in the kitchen, uh, which they watched at lunch, <laughs> conked out. So she got a new TV and loved programming remotes. She'd come to my house and program remotes. All right. And they had stickies all over them. So my dad just didn't <laughs> bother to change the, the channels. He just would watch whatever mainstream news show she had on. Mm-hmm. So there goes Fox News. Okay, so all of this is like happening, you know, maybe over a year, maybe less. And then one day he had to go into the hospital for a kidney stone. He was there for a week and they had these really old computers. And my mom said, Jennifer, can you kill some of daddy's emails because they're just going to clog up his computer. Now's our chance. Uh, Get in there. (laughs) Well, it was kind of innocent too. Like she really was going to, you know, take up space on the computer. I'm like, mom, they keep coming. Hundreds a day. Keep coming. (laughs) It's an avalanche of disinformation and outrage and everything else. So she got the idea of going in there and unsubscribing him from some of them. And it had a twofold purpose. One, she was stopping the email. And then she got the idea, I'm going to subscribe him to some of what I read, like Truth Out, Reader Supported News, Alternet, you know, a varying point of view. So they, they weren't totally disappeared, but now we had more like liberal kind of emails. Mm-hmm. And we when he came back, he was just used to reading his emails. That's what he did. They, you know, that was yeah. that was the thing. Drink they tea. Spend the day. Yeah. And um, I couldn't believe it the day he sent me a Dennis Kucinich email. Right. <laughs> Who is this guy? <laughs> and what have you done with my dad? <laughs> and and then one day he told my mom that he he said, you know, I I like I like Obama. You know, and she called me on the phone. <laughs> Shock. Daddy said, and I'm like, no, no. And then it happened again a few weeks later. And it was during 
his birthday and I brought my camera so I could catch them on film, which was a remarkable moment. Mm. And in, in the film, you can see my mother kind of like blinking, mm. you know, and, and her face like changing, like trying to, you know, act cool about it. Don't make a big deal of it. Don't make a big deal of it. There's a, yeah, there's another really interesting exchange in the movie. It might have been that same point when you were filming him, when he was talking about he liked Obama. She asked him about gay marriage, and he kind of thought about it for a minute. He was like, yeah, you know, if they want to get married, there's no no skin off my nose. It doesn't bother me. And she's really cool about it. You know, she's like downplay, but you could see like, whoa, <laughs> she was shocked. Yeah, you, you can see her reaction. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's how he would have been when we were growing up. He would have been like that. Like, mm-hmm. who cares? You know, but there was a point I remember a day I got into an argument with him in the kitchen. He had always loved my gay friends. And I'm I'm eating lunch. and He has that stupid Rush Limbaugh on upstairs and downstairs while he's and Rush Limbaugh is talking about gay people like in a bad way. And I'm like, Dad. You met my gay friends. One of them changed your tire. You you love them. You said they were cultured and interesting. He sputtered and argued. And then eventually the only thing he could really come up with was, I just don't want it in my face. So mm-hmm. that was a remarkable moment. It was a really remarkable is. moment. And I, like I said, I love the fact that it ends on that note because so many of these stories about people, you know, coming out of cultic groups or those kind of things can they regain their identity? So your father's story gives the rest of us hope if we've got friends, family, loved ones, whoever, that are just become, you know, totally enmeshed in this right-wing media thing. Because it's, it's that's what I got from the book, isn't it? It's just that constant flood. It's the mm-hmm. echo chamber. And you, you're, sur- you're just surrounded by all this outrage and resentment and anger and everything. And then that becomes your whole worldview. And, and there's no other sources of information that come in. And not only that, though, It's very manipulative, purposely so. It knows how to press buttons. Mm -hmm. Um, Limbaugh, I mean, there were other talk radio guys before Limbaugh, but Limbaugh had the total secret sauce. He he was like a, a real big talent. And he knew that getting people angry would get them coming back for more, but also he was entertaining. But the anger is what is addictive. And just think about it. All these white retired men were getting like hooked on Rush Limbaugh. Well, that provides them with inspiration. That provides them with some kind of excitement, some kind of thing to tune into every day. What's happening now? What do I have to fight? It gives them a cause. It almost gives them a reason to live. And it gives them the companionship in a sense that no longer working with with a group of people would give them. They've got this guy in his community. You could be a part of that community as well. You're a ditto head, you know, and that's the thing. Well, maybe we could transition a little bit and start talking about the other half of the book, this sort of history of the right-wing media that you delve into. So we talked about Rush Limbaugh. He was far from the first one. We talked about Bob Grant before him. Was there any other kind of radio personalities that you pick out that existed before Limbaugh and those guys that were able to do that? Because I think you mentioned Father Coughlin or Coughlin. Uh, it was yeah. back in the 1920s and 30s. Were there people like him that kind of set the stage for what Rush Limbaugh and others would become? Yes. Okay. So, uh, yeah, first in the 30s, there was 
Father Coughlin. He was the, the Tucker Carlson of his time. And when he became overtly anti-Semitic, radio stations broke with him. And FDR and his administration, they moved to suppress pro-fascist radio in America. Then there was Clarence Mannion. He uh, was an ex-law dean from Notre Dame, and they call him the godfather of modern conservative media. Uh, he was in the 50s. And then Bob Grant, like I said, who was called the father of conservative talk radio, mm -hmm. he was the 50s to the 2000s. But there was also Joe Pine in the 50s who pioneered the combat radio style of insulting callers he didn't disagree with. Uh, then he moved to TV and then Bob Grant took over Pine Show in 1964. There was Alan Burke in the 60s to 1970. 70s, and he also used that confrontational style that paved the way for Limbaugh, but uh, arguably Limbaugh was the most talented and creative. And there's a, there's a coinciding where Limbaugh comes out of the repealing of the Fairness Doctrine under Ronald Reagan in 1987. That was huge, but way, way before that, there'd been decades of government policies that regulated what could and couldn't be on air. I mean, so you have, you talk about in the book, the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, 1947, the Fairness Doctrine comes along in 1949. Uh, why was that so important to have that Fairness Doctrine? And then it ends up obviously gets repealed by Reagan in 87. The very next year, 88, I think it was, was when Limbaugh went on air and went nationwide. Why was that repealing of the Fairness Doctrine such an important sort of moment in time? If, if you don't mind, I'd like to read a, a, a quote from mm -hmm. the Radio Act of 1927 uh, by a Democratic representative who was describing the need for a fairness doctrine. Uh, and this preceded the act, obviously, uh, 1927. American thought and American politics will be largely at the mercy of those who operate these stations. For publicity is the most powerful weapon that can be wielded in a republic. And when such a weapon is placed in the hands of one person or a single selfish group is permitted to either tacitly or otherwise acquire ownership or dominate these broadcasting stations throughout the country, then woe be to those who dare to differ with them. It will be impossible to compete with them in reaching the ears of the American people. And then there was all this Nazi propaganda that was going on and FDR was kind of hip to that. Like a, a, a lot of um, journalists at the time didn't take it seriously, but but FDR, like he, he did take it seriously. So and, and so the, the radio industry back then actually accepted that the First Amendment did not mean just any speech was allowed on air, that it, it was understood that with that privilege came responsibility. So, but after the Fairness Doctrine, um, what happened is since broadcasting licenses are, are limited uh, by the, just simply by the finite number of available frequencies, licensees were required broadcasters of public airways to benefit the public. You know, as you know, one by covering matters of public controversy and two by covering them with a variety of uh, voices. So it wasn't a panacea and it was somewhat vague and it did depend on the vigilance of listeners and viewers to notice imbalance, but after the device of the Fairness Doctrine, diversity of voices went out the window. 
And since its demise, there has been much less coverage of issues of public importance. 25% of broadcast stations no longer offer any news or public affairs programming. Then it allowed for more overt political criticism and didn't have that obligation of diversity voices, as I said. And mm-hmm. the most extreme change has been in the immense volume of right-wing opinion talk shows. In fact, uh, 97% of talk is, is right-wing. And this level of uniformity is what you might find in a totalitarian society, for instance. As I understand it, back before the Fairness Doctrine was repealed, if a local radio station or television station, if they weren't airing the alternative point of view, as it were, you could call that station and complain. And they had to, in a sense, honor that. And then if they didn't deal with your complaint, you could take it all the way to your representative or senator. Isn't that right? I mean, you could actually say, hey, they're being biased. They're only showing or talking about one side of the story. There's another point of view. And they they had to be beholden to that. But then all that went out the window, didn't it? You don't have to have any, uh, just point your point of view. That's it. No. Well, there, there was a thing that was, uh, it was called the equal time rule. And that's actually still in effect. And that's for candidates. So um, if one candidate gets uh, a lot of time on a broadcast station, an opposing candidate can claim an equivalent amount of time if they request it. So that that's, that's different and that's still there. But as far as like issues, yes, you, you were supposed to be able to call your local radio station and say, hey, you know, you had these jerks on, you didn't have me on, so, you know, or this point of view on. And if they didn't listen, yeah, you could bring it to the SEC. There's a parallel storyline, isn't there? And I, I don't want to we'll get too much into it, but you talk about how important the sort of loss of Barry Goldwater in 1964, the founding of all these right-wing think tanks, they're pumping out a lot of disinformation. They're trying to get their message out to create a base, a Republican conservative base. And my storyline comes into that because I picked up the evangelical Christian right, which was part of that story. They're part of forming that hardcore right wing base that ends up becoming Trump's base, doesn't it? That's the same base, the MAGA army and all the rest of it. That base was not new <laughs> when Trump came along. It had been decades in the making, hadn't it? Yeah, yeah, it actually had been. It just like a cancer, it just sort of spread and evolved and metastasized. Yeah, it's true. It's what we've got today. Well, speaking of uh, quotes, you mentioned that quote from 1920s. I found an interesting quote talking about the repealing of the fairness doctrine. Mm-hmm. I found an article by a lawyer, retired lawyer, Edward T. Monks. He says, mm-hmm. talk radio demonstrates how profoundly the FCC's repeal of the fairness doctrine has affected political discourse. In recent years, almost all nationally syndicated political talk radio hosts on commercial stations have openly identified themselves as conservative, Republican, or both. And he lists a whole slew of them, Rush Limbaugh, Michael Medved, Michael Reagan, Bob Grant, Ken Hamblin, Pat Buchanan, Oliver North. He goes on and on, Sean Hannity and so forth. And he says, the spectrum of opinion on national political commercial talk radio ranges from extreme right wing to a very extreme right wing. There's virtually nothing else. So why is it that specifically in talk radio, why does the far right tend to dominate the airwaves? There's hardly any left wing or progressive alternative. Okay. So since the Lewis Powell memo in the 1970s, and I would argue even earlier, you know, my later research brought me back to the 50s, it was a stated objective for conservatives to buy media. 
in order to be able to sell the idea of the free market economy to Americans. Mm -hmm. So it was an objective of the right to dominate the media. And then just months after Congress opened up the medium, you know, got rid of the fairness doctrine to openly political content, then Rush Limbaugh got his first nationally syndicated news program. And he gave his show for free to all these small, uh, small market stations all over the country in exchange for a percentage of the ad revenue. Mm -hmm. So the whole country could listen to him, right? So, but due to his talent and his style, you know, pretending to be the underdog and to be anti-elite and making the listener feel they were in the same club and using the excitement of anger and indignation. Within two years, he had 5 million listeners on hundreds of stations. So dozens of imitators followed him and his formula made money. So there was that, there was the profit. Then after the Telecommunications Act of 1996, when they did away with ownership rules, big corporations swooped in and bought up most of the media, a majority of the media companies. And so there was a profiteering objective, but also some like Clear Channel, Sinclair News Corp, you know, had that Powell-esque ideological objective. So, you know, there were no big corporations pushing or interested in a liberal agenda and Liberals didn't use that formula anyway. They, you know, the like I said earlier, the one thing that the right wing imitators learned from Limbaugh was to identify an enemy and to do battle with them. And the liberal equivalents never really adopted those strategies. And, and then they also didn't have the infrastructure behind them. Um, and frankly, um, we need liberal billionaires to get involved with the media. The right took media seriously and the left did not. We'll be right back in just a few minutes with the second half of my conversation with Jen Senko, who, of course, wrote The Brainwashing of My Dad, the book, as well as the documentary. We're going to look at the issue of the legacy of the likes of Rush Limbaugh, what was his legacy in terms of especially how even now the media, the conservative media is moving farther and farther and farther to the right. And we're seeing, of course, the connection with the alt-right white supremacy militia groups. It's becoming one giant toxic mess. And of course, as we've seen, there's a, a growing connection with the alt-right and the Christian right, the far-right media, Christian media. So we're going to talk about some of that as well. And then we're going to end this episode looking at how you and I can fight back. What can you do to fight back against the misinformation, the disinformation? Jen is going to offer up some very helpful suggestions as to how you can get involved, what you can do to stem the tide of the disinformation, the misinformation, the conspiracy theories. Really, it's weaponized propaganda, as she calls it. What I wanted to do, too, though, was to tell you about what's coming up here in the next few episodes of Mindship Podcast. Now, this goes right hand in hand with this chat with Jen Senko. I had a conversation with Mike Rothschild the other day, and he is the author of a book called The Storm is Upon Us, and it's all about QAnon. Where's that at now? Where's that conspiracy theory at now? We heard loads about it during the Trump administration, for sure, and it really exploded during the coronavirus pandemic. But where's it at now? We break it down. We go through the whole thing. 
And that really is hand in glove, like I say, with what Jen is talking about. Because, of course, in terms of the far right media and social media, there's almost no distinction between conspiracy theories, misinformation, disinformation. And, of course, QAnon is, is a huge part of that whole thing. And then I also had a conversation with Dr. Melanie McAllister out of George Washington University. We took a deep dive into the history of American evangelicalism. And a lot of that has come up with the recent war in Ukraine. That shown a spotlight on the fact that so many evangelicals, and she talks about Franklin Graham in an article that she wrote in the conversation and how a lot of people were like, wait a minute, now Franklin Graham is calling for evangelicals and Christians to pray for Vladimir Putin and not Joe Biden. What is that about? And she does a dive into how evangelicals since the really the collapse of the Soviet Union have really crawled in bed with Russia and Vladimir Putin. And there's a connection with Christian nationalism. And then from there, we talk about the growing global spread of evangelicalism is certainly not something that's confined to the American context. So that's coming up as well with Dr. Melanie McAllister after the episode with Mike Rothschild. And then just as I'm doing this recording now, I just got off of a Zoom call with my really good friend, Dean Krosetz. He's been on the podcast before a couple times. He used to run a podcast called The People I Meet. And we had a little catch up. We talked about his backstory. We talked about coming out of sort of the spiritual mapping, spiritual warfare, Seven Mountains Dominion theology mandate when he was active in ministry in Houston, Texas years ago. But since then, he's walked away from Christianity altogether. What is he doing to help reconstruct his own life? What you might find is a bit surprising. One of the biggest things he's doing is writing poetry. And we're going to be talking about his journey. And I think you'll find some of his poems quite inspirational, especially if you've walked away from religion or a cult or something like that. So we'll connect up with Dean Crosets here after those other episodes have dropped with Mike Rothschild and Dr. Melanie McAllister. All right, let's get back on into this chat with Jen Senko as we pick back up on this discussion about her book and her documentary, The Brainwashing of My Dad. We're going to talk about the continuing corrosive influence of the far-right media. Where does it go from a guy like Rush Limbaugh? Because you can see, is there a straight line between the likes of Rush Limbaugh? Then you get into the Alex Jones as the Glenn Becks, Jerome Corsi. Now, though, it's social media. You know, one of the guys that's come up recently is this Nicholas J. Fuentes. I don't know if you've heard of him, mm-hmm. but he's like a white nationalist, Christian nationalist. He's got a massive following. And we're seeing, it, you know, Instagram, Twitter, uh, other so Facebook, other social media, that's the huge new development where it's just literally exploded, hasn't it, in terms of the, the dissemination of misinformation, disinformation, racism, outrage, and all the rest of it. Right. So, um, you know, there, there was the Limbaugh shtick, which was wildly successful. So um, any shtick depends on, and that shtick in particular depends on, on titillation, shock, and anger. And the imitators had to keep pushing the envelope. Plus, Republicans were loving it because it was converting voters to Republican. So to me, it was inevitable if you understand human nature and what sells. So in order to maximize profits, the big business of right-wing politics will do whatever is necessary to, to drive them. 
and making it more extreme kept the listener addicted to the adrenaline or the dopamine, you know, rush and anger. Yeah, Charles Koch says uh, they didn't expect it to go get this far, but I'm not so sure about that. They hoped maybe. Well, then <laughs> how, how important is the internet in this story? Because you go from television, talk, radio, that kind of thing. If then comes the age of the internet, social media, it's absolutely exploded. So for example, things like QAnon, you know, spreading of conspiracy theories in the COVID lockdowns. So that's when QAnon just exploded, you know, anti-vax and all these conspiracy theories. It seems like I read an article by a Harvard professor and she talks about this idea of surveillance capitalism. And she talks about, you know, we rush to the internet expecting empowerment, democratization of knowledge and help with real problems. But what we ended up with is, is surveillance capitalism and algorithms. That's what's driving so much of the stuff. Now, if you were to click on right-wing conspiracy theory stuff, you'll just get fed more and more because of the algorithms of right. Facebook, social media platforms and things like that. Right. They, they, all the social media platforms de depend on algorithms to figure out what you, what you like, collects da data on you, and mm -hmm. then you do more of what it determines that you will like. So if you watch an ISIS video, let's say that happens accidentally, uh, YouTube's going to feed you more ISIS videos. So that's how it, it, gets, it gets fed to people. I mean, there really has to be some kind of monitoring or regulation of algorithms. You know, there was Cambridge Analytica that got all the information on voters. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that's how they were able to capture a lot of the, I think it was Trump votes. Yeah, as well uh, as Brexit here in the UK. Yeah. And yeah, the CNP, the evangelical community did something like that, where they would mine data and get information on all of their patrons and figure out which ones would be most likely to vote Republican. Yeah. yeah, a lot of that was originally driven by direct mail and things like that. And now it's yeah, it's all mass media, social media, isn't it? On the evangelical right. Mm -hmm. Well, a last couple of questions. How far does it go? Because, OK, we talked about your dad. OK, he was addicted to this far right media machine. You call it a weaponized media platform, this mm -hmm. far right thing. But he became radicalized to the point where I guess the worst thing he did was send out how many thousands of emails and had arguments with his family and friends, but at what point does a person become that radicalized where they act out and commit a violent crime? Because for example, as we're doing this recording now, just a little bit ago, we had the shooting up in Buffalo, New York. Now here's an 18 year old kid puts yeah. out a 180 page manifesto on, I think it was 4chan, which yeah. is where QAnon started and the Christchurch shooter also. So he's quoting all these conspiracy theories. He's clearly been fed a diet of all this stuff. I mean, at what point does the person, you know, become that radicalized to where they actually act out and start, you know, shooting people or, or whatever they do? Right. I think this is always fascinating to people. How does somebody get there? You know, and, and some people like Tucker Carlson may say, well, they're insane, but others think he's, you know, cultified. So, some, some people are pushed to the point where they think there's no other choice. Um, and if they don't act out violently, they 
believe something apocalyptic and irreversible is going to happen. Ari Kruglonski, a research psychologist at the University of Maryland, researched how people become radicalized. And he breaks it down into three components, which I like. That's why I'm quoting them. One is the quest for significance, the quest to matter. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a universal need to live a worthwhile life. Number two, the second is the narrative, which is usually there is an enemy attacking your group and the radical must defend that group to maintain respect or honor. And three, the community the radical belongs to validates that narrative and, and violence. So he believes he, wouldn't, he would not be ostracized from his group for his act and maybe even be seen as heroic. That's fascinating. Well, you mentioned cult psychology. Going back to your dad, you talk about this several times in the book. It was like watching um, a person, a family member, a friend, or someone getting sucked into a cult and becoming a completely different person that you no longer recognize. And that's where I was fascinated by the whole thing. Because I remember you talked to uh, a bigger professor, Taylor, from the UK over here. And she mm-hmm. talked about, you know, there's two kinds of brainwashing. There's this coercive, mm-hmm. which is what we normally think of the sort of, uh, you know, Chinese communists after the Korean War. Robert right. J. Lifton talks about that in his book. And then she says there's this stealth brainwashing. It's just this drip tap of information being right. fed all the time, all the time, all the time. You're in this right. echo chamber and you become eventually a completely different person. And that's what was fascinating to me, that that sort of you know, connection to the cult psychology. Yeah. I mean, if that's all you hear, then you come to believe that's your, your reality. Mm-hmm. People, people don't make up their realities. They hear things, they read things, they, they have their communities. You, you, you know what I mean? So if this is all you're being fed, this could be all you are. But uh, so it's, it's like, she she said the idea about the brain as a medium is that it's that it soaks up information and changes in response to that information and that process is going on all the time. So every little piece of new stimulation that's coming in, the brain is absorbing that, you know. And then eventually there comes this filtration process where it won't let anything. The brain won't let anything else mm-hmm. past it. Uh, if it doesn't go in aligned with what it already believes. A yeah. confirmation bias type thing? Yeah, exactly. It's uncomfortable. But she also uh, talked about five kinds of important factors that are involved in this kind of belief change. So you have isolation, right? Like mm-hmm. my dad would isolate himself in the kitchen. And then from the kitchen to the car, he was isolated, right? There's control. So the brainwasher, the agency, or whatever it is, has control of the information that's going on in the person's brain, and nobody else is able to contribute the information. And a lot of that is, is, is chosen. You know, they choose that control. And then uncertainty. So that by that, a brainwashing agency is going to attack their former beliefs to challenge them, and then leave the person unsure of former beliefs, and then the, and then stir up this state of not really knowing, and then they're more easily fed something that is going to be reassuring and the answer. And then you have repetition. And one thing that right-wing media does is repeat, repeat, repeat. 
And then the fifth element is uh, the use of strong emotion. So, you know, a lot of anger and a lot of passion and a lot of emotive language. Certainly saw that with the Trump era. I mean, it was all about grievance politics and tapping mm-hmm. into that rage and resentment. And the thing about Trump was it was all set up for him by the Rush Limbaugh's of the world. He'd been, you know, decades in the making, hadn't they, of just stirring up the resentment, the outrage. Well, this is my last question. How can we fight back? Because you do talk about this a little bit in the book. What can we do? Because I remember a few months ago, I did a presentation for the atheists of Florida, and I was talking about Christian right, dominion theology, what the Christian right's doing in America and the world. And someone asked me at the end of the presentation, I said, what in the world can we do? You know, I thought, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to educate people as best I can, but I didn't really have an answer for that. But you talk about that in the book. How can we fight back? against the misinformation, the disinformation, all this deluge of right-wing media. Right. Okay. So right now I have more hope here on the precipice of losing our democracy. I have Mm -hmm. more hope than I had before. I'm not alone. There are finally groups, uh, grassroots groups that have formed and, you know, their work has gone way beyond mine in terms of uh, what to do. So before I get into any of the other things that people can do, I just want to mention these grassroots groups because they're really, really great. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is uh, DDAD, and that's uh, Defenders of Democracy Against Disinformation. Um, and actually, it's kind of weird. Their website is stopdisinformation.org rather than Defenders of Democracy Against Disinformation. <laughs> right. But so it, if you do a search, you might not find them on that, on that URL. <laughs> Yeah, you can't do the search. The search right. will work because they want to keep kind of low-key. They don't want to be harassed. So you right. actually have to do www.stopindisinformation.org. Anyway, they have two um, campaigns going on right now. One is Change the Channel, right, where it's a nationwide effort to ask public places to kindly change the channel from Fox to anything else because Fox is pervasive. It's mm-hmm. uh, everywhere, barbershops. Hair, you know, airports, yeah, uh, gyms everywhere, pub, bars, pubs, right, hospitals, and, so, and and they actually have little videos for scenarios that might come up when you're asking a person this. They have videos, they have instructions. I mean, because it's an uncomfortable thing, and they understand mm-hmm. that. So that that's one small thing, change the channel, and the other one is uh, unfoxing your cable, extracting. Fox, you know, it has, it's um, got Fox Business, it's got Fox Sports, and you pay $2 a month with most cable fees for Fox, and you may not even watch it. So there's another nationwide effort going on, which is called Unfox My Cable. And you get your cable company to either remove Fox or to give you a credit of $2 off. Again, www.stopdisinformation.org and way more details. I know there's been loads of things, isn't there? People trying to change the channels and get Fox News off off the, yeah, they're everywhere, isn't it? They're on hospitals and. (laughs) And and then people think, oh, I'm seeing it in the hospital. It must be news. Right. But it's, it's actually not news. It's not even close, is it? Right. I call it Fox Not News. Yeah. Okay. Then there's another great thing I have to tell you and everybody about. It's it's the Media and Democracy Project. And it has incredibly informative Zoom meetings every other Monday. Tonight, I'm joining one. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and they give you solid ideas how you can help shift the media landscape. And um, their Twitter handle is at Fixed Media Now. But if anybody wants more information about them, they can they can email me at brainwashingdad at gmail.com. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't care. If you over email me, I'll just block you. <laughs> right. Um, I was going to say, how, how can people find you? So you've got your website. Are you active anywhere else on social media that people could find you? Uh, yes, I've got a brainwashing of my dad movie Facebook page where uh, I neglected it for a long time, but now every day I'm ranting on it because I want to, you know, save our democracy. So I do what I can. Um, so there's that, and then I'm on Twitter at brainwashing dad, and I follow a bunch of great people. We kind of all follow each other. We give each other ideas and let each other know what's going on. Okay, so Facebook, Twitter, yeah, my website. Uh, the brainwashing of my dad.com and then it's got the book and the movie in it and then another brilliant brilliant person to follow who has is this dr uh, uh, julie hotard her recommendations and her articles can often be found in medium twitter handle is at upine i don't know what that means u-p-i-n-e at upine anyway she's we all uh, follow each other and then, oh, then there's Truth Tuesdays. Okay, it's part of um, this organization that's been around for a while called Rise and Resist. Truth Tuesdays, they, they are into direct action. They actually stand in front of the Fox headquarters in New York. You know, wherever there's a, a Fox headquarters, you can do it. Every Tuesday at noon and uh, protest Fox for whatever issue they're lying about, you know, that week. They're really great. Anyway, I these weren't around like a couple years ago, and and now they're around, and it, it's great. And then the one big thing, like if people if it, people have to act, they have to act. So the other big thing is is that I'm driving this campaign is to get Fox out of the military, and so you can tweet and or write Secretary Lloyd Austin or General Milley. You can find their Twitter Twitter handles. One is at SecDef, and then uh, I think Millie's is at the Joint Stat. Um, yeah. We have to, if they, if they don't want the military to get radicalized, then you know we have to get Fox out of the military. It seems like a no brainer to me. Mm. But even uh, Rush Rush Limbaugh was on the Armed Forces Radio and Television Network, wasn't it, years ago? So yeah. The, so it's not not just Fox News. It's been a long time in the making for sure. Well, I love the fact that you, not only is there this inspirational story of your dad coming back into himself, but also the resources that you've given us. So thank you so much, Jen. I've appreciated talking to you. I was going to say, too, we have our MindShift Zoom call that you're going to be dropping into in the month of June. So I'm really looking forward to that, uh, having you meet the people in our group. So. Thank you so much for, we'll we'll nail down the date, I think, if we haven't already. So thank you so much, Jenna. Thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you, too. Thank you so much for having me.